Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be covering the case of Vincent Rowell in Walker County, Alabama. Let's get right to it. Before we get into Vincent's story today, I gotta update you on the case of Tony Mitchell we went over last week. The Walker County Sheriff's Office has officially filed an answer to complaint in the civil suit brought against their department by the family of Tony Mitchell. An answer to complaint is a formal written response to allegations brought forth in a civil suit. And of course, in the answer to complaint in Tony's case, the Walker County Sheriff's Office has denied that Tony Mitchell was placed in a freezer inside their jail. In their response through their attorneys, they refer to Tony Mitchell as a, quote, drug addict and basically deny everything, admitting only that they responded to that 911 call placed on January 12th by Tony's family. That the posts made on Facebook concerning Tony's arrest were made by their department, and that, quote, Mitchell's medical and psychiatric condition was poor. The sheriff's office denied that Tony's dentures fell out after he was tased, even though they were returned to his family in a property bag dated 1-15-23. They admitted that the statement about Tony's death, the one stating he was alert and conscious, was made by public information officer T.J. Armstrong, doubling down on the fact that Tony was alert and conscious leaving the jail. They admit that Tony is now deceased and Armstrong is the one who placed the call to his cousin Steve, notifying him of Tony's condition. They also denied that Braxton Key, Alicia Heron, and Denzel Mitchell were captured on video laughing and joking as Tony lies naked on the holding cell floor, which Tony Mitchell's family has video of and has actually released still shots that you can see with your very own eyes. Yet that allegation is denied. What is also denied is that Tony was kept in an isolation cell in the booking area for the duration of his time at the jail in their answer, but in a motion to strike also filed, they wrote, the only time that Mitchell left the booking area where he was housed was to attend his 72-hour hearing and to go to the hospital. And when it comes to the medical records and the statement given by Dr. Jordan at Baptist Hospital, who treated Tony and has stated that he believed Tony's ultimate cause of death was hypothermia, as his core temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit upon arrival. In the answer, the sheriff's office responded, the medical records state what they state. Again, the medical records state that Tony Mitchell died from hypothermia after being incarcerated at the Walker County Jail. Let's get back to that motion to strike, which was filed along with their answer. What does the sheriff want stricken from the record? Any claim that Tony Mitchell was placed in a freezer. Lead attorney for the sheriff's office, Randy McNeil, spoke to WBRC Fox News and stated, Under Rule 12F of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, it allows for a process to remove language that is deemed to be scandalous and without much basis. That is what we did. We moved in that direction. He went on to say that the entire department has faced scrutiny and backlash from these allegations, stating, it created a firestorm of negative publicity. They have been flooded with negative publicity, subject of protests at the jail, and our position is, without really any merit, to the allegations that he was kept in a freezer. We wouldn't want the people to protest peacefully, now would we? And further, they stick with the claim that Tony didn't die in their custody, but at Baptist Hospital. And they are asking Tony Mitchell's mother, who is the representative of his estate, to pay their attorney fees. But I mean, was anybody really expecting that they were going to admit to any wrongdoing? While the sheriff's office publicly acts offended at the very notion that they could have done anything wrong, 
and the sheriff himself seemingly taunts the public, posting messages on his personal Facebook like, best quote of the day, a lie makes it around the world before the truth gets its boots on, leaving it open and public while turning off the comments on the official page of the Walker County Sheriff's Office that, quote, just so happens to be an exact line from the answer filed by his department that he posted hours before the news broke that they had filed a response. Behind closed doors, when it's assumed no one is listening, they have quite a different take. There's a local true crime podcaster right there near Walker County. Her name is Amber Sitton. Her podcast, Secrets True Crime. Amber, along with private investigator Michael Fleming, take a deep dive into unsolved missing and murder cases that have gone cold. Being local and covering a case right there in Walker County, Amber has developed a professional relationship with public information officer TJ Armstrong. So when news first broke that Tony Mitchell was deceased, Officer Armstrong reached out to her. Here's a clip of their exchanges on Secrets True Crime used with Amber's permission. During the weeks after Tony's death, I exchanged messages with Armstrong about his death two different times, and I also received a phone call from him. All of these contacts were initiated by Armstrong, and in all instances, he stated that the conversations were off the record. I've had many off-the-record conversations with Armstrong over the last few years, and I'll be the first to say that my communications with T.J. Armstrong over the years have been pleasant. He's always been kind, and unlike others, he has never shunned me or treated me disrespectfully, even when we were at great odds with the department over their handling of the Eric Cates and other investigations. I've never made any of the communications or the information I received from TJ Public. However, if you contact us off the record with the clear intent to purposely deceive, you lose that off the record privilege, especially if the communications are designed to help mislead the public and conceal a crime. On January 30th, right after a CBS 42 reporter published a story about the death of Tony Mitchell, I received a message from T.J. Armstrong that included a link to the story. The news article was titled, An Alabama Man Was Arrested During a Welfare Check. Two Weeks Later, He Was Dead. T.J. said, I know some of the Walker County haters are going to send you this. This reporter is absolutely sickening. There are so many holes in this story, and it's nowhere near the way he made it spin. Um, hello? The guy was arrested because he shot at our deputies. He died of a medical issue at the hospital. He's trying to make it sound like we killed the dude. Sorry, Amber, I'm just venting, LOL. Didn't mean to sound like I'm griping at you. I asked him if they knew yet what happened to Tony. He said no, and that's off the record, of course. The guy's own mama said he'd been doing drugs for years and figured he would have been dead long before now. When she got to the hospital, they were doing compressions. She told them to pull the plug. I was shocked at that message. Why would he say that about Tony's mother? At the time I received the message, I had no idea that the statement Armstrong had released to the media was untrue. But I knew from reading so many comments after his arrest from people who knew Tony that he was suffering from mental illness as well as drug addiction, and I also knew that Tony's family had to be suffering. His comment seemed gossipy and callous. TJ also sent me a message explaining that the Walker County Sheriff's Office wants to be transparent, but it's always at their risk of the reporter's opinion and bias. On February 9th, CBS 42 
released another news story in which they described the video showing a seemingly lifeless Tony Mitchell being carried out of the Walker County Jail by jailers. The story pointed out the major discrepancy between the statement released by the sheriff's office stating Tony was alert and conscious versus what the video shows occurred, but the news station did not publish the actual video. I commented on the news story and asked, where's the video? I will admit that I had already seen the video myself by this time and knew how disturbing it was. Within a few minutes of leaving that comment on the CBS 42 post on Facebook, I received a private message from TJ Armstrong. He said, I'd be interested in seeing the video too, LOL. I'd love to see a video of inmate Anthony Mitchell being unconscious. Since I had seen the video myself, I was taken aback by these messages. I asked him, You're saying you have video of him leaving there conscious and alert? TJ replied, No, I don't have any videos at all of him either way. They're saying he was unconscious. I asked him, isn't the jail under full surveillance? But before he probably even had a chance to read that reply, he called me. At the time, I, along with many others, had knowledge that TJ and Nick Smith and many others at the sheriff's office were all well aware of the video and that they had seen it. This information was later validated by the second suit filed on behalf of the whistleblower jailer who recorded the video and released it. According to her lawsuit, while at work on Tuesday night, February 7th, at around 9.45 p.m., investigator Carl Carpenter and officer T.J. Armstrong went to booking to speak with her Lieutenant Phillips to tell her they needed plaintiff to come upstairs to speak with them. Carpenter and Armstrong were waiting for her in Sheriff Nick Smith's office. Carpenter told Armstrong to show plaintiff the video, which he had on his phone. Notably, according to the lawsuit, T.J. Armstrong had that video on his phone two days prior to contacting me. I answered Armstrong's phone call, and because I knew he was lying to me, for the first time ever, I recorded our conversation. I mean, and all this is off the record, obviously, but first of all, how can you publish a video with somebody that's unconscious or conscious, whatever? And second... If they publish a video, they're interfering with an illegal investigation. I mean, obviously, we can, when the time is up for their investigation, they can find a formal records request. Any citizen can, to my knowledge, and we can release that. You know? Anyway, I'm just admitting, I'm sorry. But, I mean, what's the video going to show? Exactly. That's what I want to know. But, I mean, how have you not seen it? Uh, nobody sent it to me. I don't guess. I mean, where would I see it? Do you have it? I mean, what I'm getting at is you should have access to the video of him leaving the sheriff's office. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will have access to that, but I haven't, I mean, I haven't went down to leave the cameras. I can get somebody to pull the camera for me, but I haven't particularly went and done that. I mean, that's not... I mean, I would think that'd be the first thing you wanted to see if somebody was claiming they had video of him unconscious. Well, yeah, but I just saw that article right right when you did, so I haven't had time to do any of that. Gotcha. Yeah, I just saw the video, or the thing saying that there was a video like five minutes ago. And since I saw your comment, that's that's when I saw it, and that's when I sent you that message. I was like, what in the world? I mean, you know, if they have a video, I want to see it. Absolutely, I do too. I want to see their video. No, we wouldn't be able to release anything. Um until after Aaliyah has an investigation, but there's no problem. The jail is under. I think we've got nice cats, maybe. 
Absolutely, would have a problem doing that. I mean, that's what I'm saying. If he's not, if he wasn't, if he was alert and conscious, that should be very easy to put to bed. Mm-hmm. At the time, I suspected Armstrong was trying to get me to admit I had the video. Huge thank you to Amber for allowing us access to that call. It shows once again the Walker County Sheriff's Office propensity for misleading the public, if you ask me. And with that update, let's get right into the story of Vincent Rao, who also died in custody of the Walker County Sheriff's Office. Vincent Lamar Rao was born in Birmingham, Alabama on July 21, 1988. He was the baby of his mother's three children, and he loved being around his mom. His mother Linda recalled a time when Vincent was almost five and couldn't quite go to school yet. She dropped him off at the babysitter's, and when her shift ended early, she went to go and pick him up. Only when she got to the babysitter's house, the babysitter was confused. Vincent wasn't there. He never had been. Of course, Linda was freaking out. That's where she had left him. So she rushed over to their house, and when she pulled up, the door was wide open, and out came Vincent, the dog following behind him. It turned out that Vincent wasn't in the mood to be babysat that day, so he had walked the back way home and hung out with the dog while his mom was at work. Vincent was extremely close to his mom, his grandfather, siblings, and his many cousins. He was always a little mischievous, but had a good heart and a smile that could get him out of almost anything. But as Vincent became a teen, that good heart had a way of leading him into trouble. In one instance, he was caught stealing a video game, or so everyone thought. It wouldn't be until after his death that his family learned that Vincent actually took the fall for stealing the game, so that the young lady who was responsible wouldn't get into trouble, because in her words, he knew that her grandmother would beat her. And then in high school, he began dating a girl like high schoolers do. But you see, Vincent was a young black male and she was a young white female. And there were certain people who didn't like that. I know you'd think by this time we'd be way beyond that, but as we know, that's not always the case. As I said, they began dating in school when Vincent was 17 and she was 16. He turned 18 and she found herself pregnant. Charges were pressed by the family and Vincent ended up serving two years in prison due to those charges. I want to point out here that this happened in the early 2000s. Laws in many states in the U.S. have since been changed to prevent this exact thing from happening. Anyhow, this child they shared was given Vincent's last name by the mother, and she attempted to continue with the relationship. In fact, Vincent's son, who is now a teenager, lives with Vincent's family. According to his family, Vincent loved his son more than anything. He had served his time and been released, and to his family, it seemed he was getting his life back on track. But on September 30th of 2009, his mom, who Vincent called every day, didn't hear from him. Of course, this was odd, and it got stranger because he didn't call the next day or the next, and she really began to worry. But on Saturday, October 3rd, 2009, Vincent's father, Victor Sr., did receive a call from Vincent. He told his dad that he was in jail and this was the first time he had been able to use the telephone. From the sound of Vincent's voice, he knew something was off, so he asked him what was wrong. Vincent told his father that he had been beaten and tased and that he could barely breathe, talk, or walk. He went on to tell his dad that he had stolen a dump truck to go see friends in Mississippi and that he was a good person and didn't deserve what was happening to him. He wanted his dad to tell his mother he was sorry and his family that he loved them and again, he was sorry. Then the phone disconnected. That would be the last time his family would ever hear his voice again. Vincent's father called his mother Linda and told her everything that had just happened. Obviously concerned, she called the Walker County Jail and asked when they could visit him and she was informed that they would not be able to see him until the following Thursday. But Vincent wouldn't live long enough to make it to that visit. Three days passed and Linda Rao's phone rang again. It was 4.29 a.m. on Tuesday, October 6, 2009. 
This time, there was a man on the other end. He informed Linda that Vincent had been found unresponsive in his cell, and he was gone. She was obviously distraught. How had this happened? How had her son died while in custody? Vincent's father took the phone and he was informed that the man on the phone was J.C. Poe and Vincent had passed away, but they didn't know the cause. So his body would be sent to Huntsville for autopsy. And with that, Linda and Victor headed up to the Walker County Jail. Upon their arrival, they spoke with then-jail administrator Trent McCluskey, who told them that he didn't have any information yet either, but that Vincent's death would be investigated. He then brought in the investigator who would be handling Vincent's case and introduced him. His name was Tim Thomas. The Rouse were led to where at the time Sheriff John Tyree was waiting. According to Linda, the sheriff told her that Vincent had walked into the Walker County Jail perfectly fine and didn't have a scratch on him. He went on to detail the circumstances of Vincent arriving in the custody of Walker County deputies, telling the mother that one of his officers had picked Vincent up from the nearby Summerton County Jail on Thursday, October 1st at approximately 5.30 p.m. The sheriff then told her that Vincent was taken to Baptist Hospital to be checked for swine flu. Y'all remember when that was a thing? Anyhow, this would have been the second time Vincent would have been taken to Baptist Hospital for medical treatment since he was first taken in by the agency that arrested him, the Summerton Police Department. Only problem is that medical records from Baptist Hospital don't show a second visit, and we'll get to that first one here in just a minute. Anyhow, Victor Sr. went on to ask about what Vincent had told him over the phone, that he had been beaten and tased. And according to the family, the sheriff responded that he may have heard something about that. The sheriff went on to ask if Vincent had a history of medical issues, and the family informed him that he didn't. He'd always been healthy. He played sports throughout his youth and even as a young adult. He lifted weights, jogged every day with his dogs, and frequently walked with a weighted backpack to stay in shape. All three officers present made remarks about what a, quote, big old boy Vincent was. At the conclusion of the conversation, Linda was handed Vincent's belongings, which consisted of a nylon knitted backpack and a brown paper bag with bloody clothes belonging to Vincent inside. As she was walking away with her son's bloody clothes, Officer McCluskey took the brown paper bag and stated he needed the clothes for evidence. The jail clerk then handed her a $25 check and Vincent's wallet and cell phone. This handful of items was all she had left of her 21-year-old son. And yes, Vincent had made mistakes. He wasn't perfect. But hell, who is? He was young and had plenty of time to turn things around but that opportunity was now taken. Vincent was gone. Linda Rao had lost her youngest son, her baby. But how and why? She looked through Vincent's phone for clues, and it didn't take long before she found one. The night Vincent had been arrested for stealing the dump truck, he had placed a call to 911 around 5 a.m. This would have been around the time he was being pursued by law enforcement from multiple agencies. Why did he place that call? Was he afraid and trying to end the pursuit peacefully? Had his history with police made him apprehensive to pull over? We'll never have the answer because that call never connected. And this was just the first of many questions raised after Vincent's death. Questions that his mother Linda would never stop trying to answer. And nothing would get in her way. Linda Rall is one of a kind. She's the most perfect mix of sweet and tough you'd ever hope to find. A truck driver by trade in a male-dominated industry, she has to be tough. But at the same time, she's gracious, down-to-earth, and one of those people you can't help but be instantly drawn to. She's a fighter, that's for sure, but also someone you would call when you were down and out and she'd be there in a flash, with an encouraging word and a helpful hand. The world needs more Lindas. We just do. In the midst of trying to grieve the loss of her son, she began asking those questions. And the answers? Well, they only led to more confusion. 
On the afternoon of October 8th, Linda called the coroner's office. She spoke to J.C. Poe inquiring about Vincent's cause of death, and his answer shocked her. He told Linda that Vincent had died from an enlarged heart. Only that didn't make any sense. Again, Vincent had always been healthy. Vincent Lamar Rao was laid to rest on October 10, 2009. He was remembered for his smile, vibrance, and the love he had for his son. But his family couldn't just move on and pick up the pieces. They had to know what happened. His mother had been told that he died due to an enlarged heart. But when she got his death certificate, the cause of death was listed as an accident due to an automobile crash. What crash? The family had been told that he stole a dump truck and was chased by police. But there was never any mention of a crash. And further, Sheriff Tyree had told her there were no visible signs of trauma or injury. So what in the hell was all this crash talk about? Linda Rao did some digging, and here's what she discovered. We'll have to rewind things to the night of Vincent's arrest, September 30th, 2009. According to court records, on that morning between the hours of 12 and 1 a.m., Vincent left his home and took a dump truck from the Jefferson County lot. Jefferson County happens to be the county Birmingham is located in and where Vincent lived. Walker County sits to the northwest of Jefferson. Vincent went to see friends in Mississippi. But eventually, an Alabama state trooper got behind him and noticed something was wrong with the lights on the truck. He attempted to pull Vincent over, but Vincent kept going, and other agencies joined in on the chase, including the Summerton Police, the Walker County Sheriff's Office, and the Marion County Sheriff's Department. Eventually, spike strips were deployed and the truck rolled to a stop at around 6 a.m., Remember, Vincent had tried to call 911 earlier, possibly to end the chase peacefully, but that call never went through. Anyhow, the strips were deployed and Vincent hopped out of the truck and, according to a police report, quote, hit the ground running. He gave the officers one heck of a chase, but eventually they caught up to him and he was apprehended. Summerton Police Officer Clint McKinney wrote in the report, the suspect jumped out of the truck and hit the ground running as officers chased him into the woods. I don't know what happened in the woods. One of the Marion County guys did advise me that he had to taser him. Vincent was then taken to the Summerton Police Headquarters and eventually at around 6.20 a.m. to Walker Baptist Medical Center for injuries sustained during his arrest. Medical records from Walker Baptist Hospital show that at the time, he had pain and tenderness in his left leg, bruising and abrasions on the left side of his abdomen, left shin, lower left leg, right elbow, and left wrist. Also, a puncture wound to the lower side of his abdomen, which was likely from the taser. The injuries didn't exactly appear to be from an accident, but perhaps a physical altercation. Walker Baptist Medical did a pretty full workup. Just over $13,000 worth of testing, to be exact. This included x-rays, blood work, CT scans, and most importantly, a CT scan of Vincent's pelvis and abdomen with contrast dye. These tests would check for any internal bleeding, clotting, excess fluid, or infection, among other things. After spending a little over four hours at Walker Baptist, Vincent was discharged. The results of the testing showed no signs of internal bleeding or anything that serious. He was placed back in the custody of the Summerton police at 10.30 a.m. At this time, Vincent was walking, talking, and according to the medical records, had typical motor skills and seemed oriented. Vincent was held in the Summerton County Jail from 10.30 a.m. September 30th until approximately 5.30 p.m. on October 1st. If you do the math, that's approximately 31 hours. At that point, a deputy from Walker County took him from Summerton and transported him to the Walker County Jail. The reason? According to an officer at the Summerton County Jail, Vincent was facing a felony charge for stealing the dump truck, and he couldn't be held in Summerton because they weren't equipped to hold someone facing a felony charge. 
When Linda Rao spoke to this officer, he also made comments about how fast Vincent had ran when he had jumped out of the dump truck. If he had been injured in a crash, how was that possible? After being given a pretty clean bill of health from the hospital and walking out the doors into the custody of Summerton police, by the time Walker County arrived to transport Vincent to their jail, Vincent Rao was unable to stand, walk, and deputies had difficulty understanding his answers to questions. What had happened in those 31 hours? How had he gone from walking, talking, and coherent to unable to even stand and mentally unable to answer simple questions? According to what Sheriff Tyree told Linda, Vincent was transported again to the hospital for that swine flu test. But medical records from that visit don't seem to exist. And further, Linda received copies of the bills for all of Vincent's medical treatment. Want to know what's not there? Any visit for any other date other than the day Vincent was arrested, or any record of a swine flu test. Back to Vincent's booking in the Walker County Jail. Deputies made note that he was not able to stand or walk, and they had difficulty understanding him. According to court documents, since he was unable to walk, Vincent was dragged into his cell by two Walker County deputies. And his treatment only worsened from there. Vincent was visited twice a day during his period of incarceration by two trained nurses, Sonia Gold and Tanya Fleming. And at least twice a day, Vincent pleaded to be taken to the hospital. He knew something was wrong, and he repeatedly asked for help, going so far as to tell them that he would die if he didn't get medical care. He was seen at one point by a doctor at the jail, David Wilson. Vincent reported that he was in pain and needed help, but again, he wasn't taken to the hospital. Not only did he not receive the medical care he needed, Vincent was taunted by jail staff. He asked to make phone calls, and though the staff knew he was unable to walk, he was told that he could use the phone if he could get to it. Vincent drug himself across the floor using only his hands to get him to the phone. It turns out that was the reason he had only called his family that one time, and why he was so profusely apologizing. Vincent Rao had drug himself to that telephone to make that call, likely knowing that it could be his last. On October 2, 2009, Vincent was dragged out of his cell once again to attend a court hearing. According to court documents, he was taken to the courthouse in a transport vehicle, but returned from the courthouse and to the jail in a wheelchair. Because he was bleeding from his rectum and officers didn't want blood in the vehicle, so they wheeled him back. Over the course of the next four days, Vincent lay in the floor of his cell unable to get up to even use the bathroom on his own. He pleaded for help, but his cries fell on deaf ears. No one helped Vincent. On October 6, 2009, Vincent died on the floor of his cell in the Walker County Jail. He was pronounced deceased by J.C. Poe, Walker County Coroner, at 2.43 a.m. An autopsy was performed that same day at around 10.30 a.m. by State Medical Examiner Emily Ward. The results of the postmortem exam state that Vincent Rowell's manner of death was accidental, and his ultimate cause of death was a pulmonary embolism due to pelvic vein thrombosis from an automobile crash or a blood clot that had originated in his left pelvic vein and traveled to his lung. This was Vincent's ultimate cause of death. But there were several other findings. The medical examiner noted that Vincent had an enlarged heart and a foramen oval, or a hole between the left and right atria or upper chambers of the heart, which everyone is born with, but it closes shortly after birth. These findings were news to Vincent's family. Though an enlarged heart can go undetected, a hole in the heart generally doesn't, and neither of these issues had ever been detected throughout Vincent's life. 
Further, the medical examiner noted a blood clot that had passed from the right side of his heart to the left and went to his aorta. This was likely part of the same clot that had made it to his lungs. The last finding was puzzling because the medical examiner noted cerebral edema or swelling of the brain. I consulted with medical experts and researched as much as I could, and I found that this would have had nothing to do with the internal bleeding or blood clots that killed him. So where had the brain swelling come from? We don't have an explanation. Vincent Rao had died from a blood clot that had dislodged from his leg and went to his lungs, according to the medical examiner. You know what puts you at risk for pulmonary embolism? Several things, but in Vincent's case, there were two things, trauma and sitting still for long periods of time. We know that Vincent was unable to stand or walk. And further, there were signs of injury all over Vincent's body some of which were not documented when he was seen at Walker Baptist Hospital. Had Baptist Hospital missed all of these injuries, or had they occurred later? Medical staff at the hospital had only documented a puncture wound to Vincent's abdomen, bruises on his shin and lower left leg, right elbow, and left wrist. The largest injury documented at the hospital was a one and a half centimeter deep one centimeter long bruise slash abrasion on the left side of his abdomen, which would be consistent with a wound from a taser. But the medical examiner documented a substantial amount of injuries that the hospital hadn't, or that were more severe than the original documentation, including a 10 by 10 inch, inch, not centimeter, bruise on the front of Vincent's left hip, a 4 by 2 inch bruise on his right hip, a four-inch bruise on the back of his left knee, abrasions all over the back of his right elbow with a surrounding bruise measuring eight inches at its greatest dimension, a one-inch abrasion with a bruise on his right forearm and small abrasions on both of his palms, two rectangular abrasions, one on the left side of his chest and the other on the right side of his abdominal wall, each measuring one and a half inches vertically and one and a quarter inch horizontally. At least three linear abrasions across Vincent's face, with the largest one measuring approximately an inch across the bridge of his nose. There was what the medical examiner described as copious amounts of hemorrhage around the pelvis near the bruising on the front of Vincent's hips. This means that Vincent had been bleeding internally. And if Vincent was bleeding internally when he was seen at Walker Baptist, they would or should have known. There was a CT scan of his pelvis and abdomen with contrast dye. But according to his medical records, there was no internal bleeding. So what had happened? The medical examiner wrote it off as an accidental death due to injuries sustained in that automobile accident. But while Vincent's body was covered in bruises and abrasions, the dump truck sustained no damage, just four flat tires. There's video proof of this, obtained by reporter Cynthia Gould. The video was taken by a city employee when the truck was returned to the lot. There's no visible damage to the truck. And again, nowhere in any reports was it documented that there was any type of crash. Once Vincent's body made it to the funeral home and his family made arrangements to lay him to rest, employees at the funeral home began to prepare his body. And the state of Vincent's body with the amount of injuries was so jarring, they pulled out a video camera and took video documenting the injuries. The video shows that Vincent was covered in scrapes and bruises in varying stage of healing. The funeral home documented even more injuries than the medical examiner had, including abrasions to Vincent's back. It looked as if he had been beaten. Now, this is not a standard procedure for a funeral home, but again, they were so alarmed at what they saw, they felt the need to document it. And then came the letter a year and a half after Vincent's death. The letter came from the court-appointed attorney Vincent had never gotten the opportunity to meet with concerning his charges. That attorney was Barry Elkins. All charges against Vincent had been dismissed. So why was he writing the family? The reason was jaw-dropping. 
The letter was dated April 18th, 2011, and it read, On Thursday, April 14th, 2011, I received a letter from an inmate who stated that he was in the cell next to Vincent Rao in the Walker County Jail on the night Vincent died. I was asked by the inmate to forward this letter to you. I am sending you a copy of the letter, two pages, that the inmate wrote to me and have made copies to put in Vincent's files. The letter contains the inmate's name and address. I hope that this will help you in finding out what happened to Vincent, and I pray that justice will be served. Attached was the letter from an inmate in prison in Clayton, Alabama. He had written the lawyer looking for contact information for Vincent's family. Because when Vincent was in the Walker County Jail, he was too, just the next cell over. Vincent was in cell three and he was in cell two. He detailed to the attorney what he had witnessed and told him that he had passed this information on to Trent McCluskey and the nurse. And he was told by McCluskey that someone from the sheriff's office would contact him. Only no one had. He ended the letter writing, I am paying for what I done wrong, and I think the jail employees who done wrong in this should have to pay for the wrong they done. So if you can or would, please send me any information you can. I will be happy to pay for your time, or you could forward my info to whoever might need to know this. This information, of course, was forwarded to Linda Rao, and she wrote to the inmate. She received a letter back dated May 9, 2011. It read, Miss Rao, I was so relieved to finally hear from someone in Vincent's family. I know I have written over 30 different lawyers in several different counties trying to get the information I needed to get in contact with you. I have been writing letters for over a year now whenever I could get the stamps, and it finally paid off. I am so glad I did not give up. It went on to say, as you know, I was housed in the booking area of the jail in the cell next to Vincent's, so I could hear and see everything that went on. Vincent was in real bad shape and repeatedly asked for medical help. He could not walk at all and just laid in the floor of his cell. He could not even get up to use the bathroom or even get a drink of water. He eat very little. They would go in his cell maybe once a day, if that much, grab him by the arms and pull him out of the cell and mop and clean it up some. Like I said, he could not get up to use the bathroom and they would just let him lay in his own waste. They would have inmates drag him to the shower every other day to bathe him. These inmates and officers treated him like he was nothing. I would tell them they needed to stop doing him the way they was, and they would tell me to mind my own business. I don't see how they could treat anyone the way they did him and live with their self. I seen them drag him out to the county van and carry him to court, which they ended up having to carry a wheelchair to the courthouse and bring him back to the jail because he got real sick. There is a lot more to all this, some I explained in my letter to Mr. Elkins, which I believe he sent to you. I know every jail employee's name and the things they did that was wrong. If you would like, let me know and I will tell you everything. I just don't want to cause you any pain. What the inmate had disclosed to Mr. Elkins was that Vincent had pleaded for medical treatment every day that he was in that jail cell, and his pleas were met with, shut the F up by a female detention deputy, and the nurse had told him to lay down. There was nothing wrong with him. And as we know, Vincent died right there in that jail cell. A wrongful death lawsuit was filed against many of the agencies and individuals who played a role in Vincent's death. A settlement was eventually released and the FBI began investigating to determine if charges should be brought and against who. Vincent made a stupid choice that night. He took a dump truck that didn't belong to him. It was dumb. He was 21 years old, just a youngin. I don't know about you, but at 21, I wasn't exactly Johnny on the spot when it came to my decision-making skills. It shouldn't have cost him his life. There's no death sentence for stealing property in this country. He hadn't even had his day in court. Does it go deeper than that, though? 
had Vincent's treatment at the time of his arrest, whatever the hell happened in Summerton County and the absolute failure of the Walker County Jail to act when he clearly needed medical care and the seeming cover-up of officials after his death all stemmed from his charges that night. Were they that pressed over a dump truck? Or is it possible that they took one look at Vincent's record and made their mind up about who he was and acted accordingly, without any of the facts? Vincent had done his time. His child was given his last name, and the mother of this child still wanted to pursue a relationship with him. Those were the facts. I wouldn't even bring this history up because it had nothing to do with his arrest on September 30th, 2009, but it may have affected the way he was perceived and the events that followed, and that is the only reason we're here talking about it. I do want to make something crystal clear. The people responsible for Vincent's death are whoever caused those injuries to his body, the medical professionals and jail staff who ignored his obvious need for medical care and repeatedly failed to act, and anyone who assisted in obscuring the truth about what happened to Vincent. Vincent Rao didn't deserve this. His family didn't deserve this. He begged for help. He knew something was wrong, and they ignored him. While the civil suit is over, no one has been held criminally accountable for Vincent's death despite an ongoing investigation by the FBI into whether or not Vincent's civil rights were violated. That investigation is, well, still ongoing. With the spotlight again on Walker County due to the death of Tony Mitchell, there is a renewed interest and hope that Vincent's family can get the justice he deserves. Linda Rao continues to fight for her son. She recalled the last conversation she had with Vincent days before his arrest. He called and asked, Faye, what are you cooking? You see, Faye is Linda's middle name and her youngest son was the only one who called her by it. It's something she misses terribly since Vincent's death. She told Vincent what she was making and he asked her to bring a plate over to her father's where he was staying. So she did. They shared that meal together and Linda could have never imagined that was the last time she'd see her son. And the truth is, it shouldn't have been. Vincent's absence is felt by so many. He was a father, a son, a brother, a grandson, a cousin, and a friend. He will forever be remembered for that bright smile and his way of cracking jokes at the most serious of times. Unfortunately, Vincent's family isn't alone in their loss and neither is Tony Mitchell's. There have been multiple suspicious deaths at the Walker County Jail. There's a case of Autumn Harris, who according to CBS 42, was originally arrested in June of 2018 for a theft of property charge. The charge stemmed from an argument with a friend over 40 bucks. She was released on bond and her court date set for August, but she failed to show. According to her family's lawyer, Justin Jones, as he spoke to CBS 42, a warrant was issued for her arrest on the failure to appear. On November 13th, she was arrested. Her bond revoked until her hearing on December 6, 2018. But she would never make it to that hearing because she died in the Walker County Jail the day before it was to take place. An autopsy revealed that 34-year-old Autumn died of pneumonia. According to court documents, the jail knew Autumn had pneumonia when she was booked. Those records also note that she had medication for her illness when she arrived, but it wasn't given to her. The autopsy report showed her lungs were riddled with infection and full of fluid. Her father, Mike Harris, is a manager at Collins Blake Funeral Home in Jasper. He stated to the outlet, her lungs were at the capacity of double, full of infection, sepsis, so that's why I know in the profession I am that they let her die. Autumn told jail staff and medical personnel that she needed her inhaler and she couldn't breathe, but she was ignored and ultimately it cost her her life. 
That's really becoming a common occurrence now, isn't it? Even more tragic is that the jail never notified Mike of his daughter's death. He wasn't told until he arrived for work the following morning at the funeral home when the coroner broke the news that his daughter was gone. Autumn died in that jail over a $40 theft charge. Litigation is still ongoing in Autumn's case. And it's not just the jail. For Walker County having a population of just over 60,000 people, there sure are a lot of deadly interactions with police. According to court documents, on August 2, 2019, at approximately 10.51 p.m., 14-year-old Austin Aaron was riding his ATV near the intersection of Alabama Highway 69 and Old Tuscaloosa Road in Walker County. When his ATV was struck by a 2015 Chevrolet Tahoe owned by the Walker County Sheriff's Department. Behind the wheel was Deputy Blake Hudson, who was in uniform and on duty. He was driving at a high rate of speed without his patrol lights engaged when he struck the ATV. The collision threw Aaron from his ATV into a ditch. Deputy Hudson allegedly did not get out of the Tahoe and failed to provide any medical care. Austin Aaron was transported to a local children's hospital, and as he was fighting for his life, Sheriff then and now, Nick Smith, put out a statement that people in the small community of Jasper should not point fingers, stating in part, quote, this tragic accident has left a young boy clinging to life and a young man devastated. This accident will forever change those two people, their families, and will have a ripple effect across our entire county. It's at this very trying time that we, as a county, should fall to our knees and pray fervently for mercy and peace. Now is not the time to place blame, not on the deputy, not on the young boy, and most definitely not on his parents. He urged citizens to pray for Austin's recovery and for God to, quote, bring peace and calm to a deputy who is absolutely broken. A deputy that was also under the influence of alcohol at the time of the crash. Yeah, drinking and driving on duty. Look, I'm all for praying. But it seems extremely tone deaf for a sheriff to call for prayers and peace and calm for his drunk driving ass deputy while a 14-year-old child fights for his life. And let's not point fingers. Your deputy was drunk driving recklessly on duty. I'm going to point all the fingers. Tragically, as hard as he fought, Austin Aaron passed away on August 5, 2019. Deputy Blake Hudson was later indicted on manslaughter charges, his bail set at a measly $30,000, and that case remains ongoing. My prayers continue to be with the family that lost their 14-year-old child. And then there's the case of Frederick Earl Height Jr., who was in his home wearing his bathrobe barefoot and unarmed on February 26, 2021. According to AL.com, his father called needing help for his son. Walker County Deputy Jackson arrived at his home responding to a mental health call. After a brief interaction, Deputy Jackson shot Height Jr. in the chest, killing him. This was all captured on video, and honestly, it's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. Frederick was agitated and trying to get away from the deputy, asking him what is going on. I mean, there was now a deputy standing inside his home. He repeatedly asked what was happening. At one point, Deputy Jackson responded, I'll fuck you up. I'll fuck you up, son. A few moments later, the deputy yelled, I'll shoot you. I'm gonna shoot you. And several seconds later, he does. He shot Frederick at near point-blank range in the chest. The deputy then retrieves his radio and says, Send me some backup here. Send me some paramedics in. I had to shoot one. Send the investigators. 
No aid was rendered to Frederick as he lied dying on the floor. Frederick's father spoke to the outlet and stated, The death of my son is beyond tragic. I asked for help and instead my son was killed. Emergency calls requesting mental health services far too often end in lethal force. And Sheriff Nick Smith was back on his soapbox, this time on his personal Facebook page. He said that while we don't yet have all the facts, quote, what I do know is that the incident occurred over a much longer time period than a minute and 30 seconds, in reference to the video. The post continued, and I know that a veteran deputy with over 20 years of service keeping this county safe will never be the same. I know a family that is angry and mourning the loss of their loved one will never be the same either. And our department's thoughts and prayers are with all of them. And for those reasons alone, none of us are in a position to condemn anyone involved. There is an investigation that has to be conducted, and it will be fair and just. It won't take place on Facebook or around the water coolers of workplaces in the days that follow. It will take place in the experienced and professional hands of unbiased investigators committed to finding the truth amid so much chaos. Get off the soapbox, Nick. And it gets worse because District Attorney Bill Adair, the same DA who was oh so helpful in getting Tony Mitchell charged with attempted murder and got that little shout out in the Facebook post announcing Tony Mitchell's arrest, said no criminal charges were warranted, and the deputy returned to work. A wrongful death lawsuit was filed in that case as well. How many lawsuits can one small department face at one time? How many lawsuits has Sheriff Nick Smith been personally named in? And even these are just a snapshot of the cases that have occurred right there in that county. Never have I ever covered a case like this one, where so much has occurred in just one small jurisdiction. Never have I ever covered a case where I have been warned repeatedly that I should tread lightly because you really can't tell the good guys from the bad here. There's something very wrong going on at the Walker County Sheriff's Office. Something has to change for the people of Walker County. And it needs to change now. If you haven't signed the petition yet, I'll be sure to link it once again in the show notes. Every signature counts. Let's help the citizens of Walker County make a real change. Before we go, I highly recommend you head on over to Secrets True Crime. Amber Sitton and Michael Fleming have one heck of a boots on the ground, serialized, investigative podcast. They have covered two cases that have been highly requested for me to cover. The case of Eric Cates and his dog Gypsy right there in Walker County, a case that remains unsolved. And also the unsolved case of Jessica Hamby, who vanished from the nearby town of Haleyville, Alabama. After finding their podcast and what they have done for these families, there is simply nothing I could add to it. So I highly recommend you head on over there and check out all three seasons of Secrets True Crime. I'll be sure to also post those links in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on this case on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 